0: Welcome to the For the Church Podcast, another great gospel-centered resource from Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. My name is Jared Wilson. I'm an assistant professor of pastoral ministry and author in residence at Midwestern Seminary. And I'm in the beautiful Spurgeon Library as always. Actually, I'm not in the Spurgeon Library. But my colleague, Ronnie Kurtz is
1: in the Spurgeon Library. I am in the beautiful Spurgeon Library, as always.
0: That's right. (laughs) Assistant Director for Marketing and uh, Pastor at Emmaus Church and Managing Editor for the Church. You're accumulating as many titles as I have, Ronnie. That's right. That's exactly right. (laughs) That's my goal. Is it? This is Jared. Okay. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) I'm trying to like shed titles off now. (laughs) I was recently told, um, I can upgrade my title. So I don't have to say professor at Spurgeon College, author in residence at Midwestern Seminary. I can just say Midwestern Seminary for the whole thing now. Okay. Apparently I'm enough hours into the doctoral thing that I, I qualify for well, the,
1: congratulations.
0: the the big boy status. Yeah. <laughs> is, uh, is the Spurgeon library beautiful this morning?
1: It's beautiful. They're literally, I can see them turning on all the lights right
0: now, this very moment uh, as we speak. Look so at that. you, you beat the light turner honors to work That's this morning. Right. <laughs> Well, I'm in my home studio. I had to do some things uh, around the house today and uh, um, including these podcast recordings. But thankfully, (laughs) through the wonders of technology, uh, we're able to do this. Man, it's been a while. I feel like we haven't. uh, I saw you in passing yesterday in in the center, but we haven't sat down and done this for a while.
1: I know. I miss you, Jared. It's been too long.
0: Yeah. Are, are, Are you having a good year so far?
1: You know, I can't complain. I can't complain. I'm okay. rounding third on dissertation, so that feels good. Ooh, hopefully, okay. Hopefully, landing the plane there soon and uh, move on to post-educational life.
0: Okay, so, so for all the nerds listening, who, uh, uh, what is your dissertation on? <laughs> Remind us. It's it's trinitarianism of some kind, yes. Uh, it's, I mean, it trinitarianism. No. Matters, okay. of course, but yeah, so immutability. Divinity. Is that That's right?
1: right. Divine. Okay, so the working title is uh, "No Shadow of Turning." Divine immutability and the economy of redemption. Okay,
0: say say that one more time. No shadow of turning. Okay.
1: Colon, uh, divine immutability and the economy of redemption. So basically, just tracing how immutability impacts
0: salvation um, and God's outer works. So, wow. Okay. Now, for the non nerds who are listening, uh, define in a Cliff Notes way what (laughs) what immutability means. Yeah, simply in its most simple
1: form, immutability uh, just declares that God doesn't change.
0: Yeah, but Ronnie, I pray, and and God (laughs) does things. Um, So how can that how can that be true? You weren't expecting this question.
1: Yeah, no, I didn't realize this was an episode on immutability. Well, I actually uh, a little bit of an announcement here. I actually just signed a contract to publish my dissertation uh, with uh, Christian Focus. So nice. You uh, you can read that question and more in okay. the forthcoming volume. Uh, <laughs> but what a I, teaser in short. I, I will say we must have a way for a unchanging God to be able to be involved in divine action in our day-to-day lives. Of course.
0: Yeah. Well, I, and, and, and of course I agree. And I love that you started this sentence. With well, actually, it's the perfect seminary. <laughs> oh no! <laughs> response <laughs> to a theology question.
1: Right when but I, right I when, when I, said that, I, pushed my glasses up as well. That's right. I want.
0: <laughs> I want to note that um, you you signed an agreement to have this thing published, and you haven't written it yet. Well, I am. I am about eighty percent done.
1: So, it's, oh, okay. It's, yeah, it's real close to being done. I should so be finished, semester. hopefully, by the end of March or first week of April.
0: Okay, okay, so they've seen some material. In, mm-hmm. in that's right. Thing. Okay, so it's not as impressive, but it was, it's still pretty <laughs> <laughs> It's still pretty impressive. You got already a book deal on the thing. So when is that supposed to uh, come out?
1: We're not sure yet, still. So, uh, okay. My guess will be sometime late 22.
0: Okay, well, we'll have to um, have you on the podcast. Yeah, I would love to, if you wouldn't mind hosting. Yeah, I would love to do that. And and you can explain uh, for more people exactly um, how God doesn't change when the Bible says all kinds of stuff about him changing, man. Something (laughs) like that. Yeah. Changing his mind and all kinds of things. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, Hopefully people understand (laughs) that I'm joking, but uh, maybe not. Hey, let's get right in. (laughs) Let's get right into the content. Uh, This is a mailbag episode. It's been a little while it yeah, has been it's been months and months and months since we've done an episode <laughs> of the for the church mailbag. We got some good questions. I just want to note um uh, uh, up front that when I did the call on social media for questions and topics for this installment, I found it very interesting that the majority of the suggestions had nothing to do with practical mm-hmm. uh matters related to the church. And mostly had to do with how do I sort through feeling overwhelmed right now? How do I um and and so it was just a reminder to me, I I didn't um I don't even think I included any of those questions. This may sound helpful. <laughs> <laughs> um, there were so many of them. I thought maybe we can dedicate a later episode perhaps to just and, you know, more encouragement and yeah. just kind of counsel, if if we can, you know, call it that, Absolutely. Um, because I didn't feel like, you know, throwing in one of those questions amid four or five other questions that we're covering would really do, do that justice. But I just found it notable um, and as a reminder to be praying for our church leaders, um, because it was mostly pastors. And a lot of it just had to do with, I'm struggling. I'm feeling overwhelmed. Um, how do I avoid burnout? You know all these things, and certainly, you know this this season, this last year going on a year and a half now of of COVID, but everything else. It's not just COVID. I think social unrest and political division and all kinds of things. All of that is just taking a toll on pastors. Certainly, the church and and certainly everyone. But pastors who feel this responsibility. Mm -hmm. Um, and and you know this as a pastor um yeah just feel the weight of shepherding a church being responsible for the spiritual direction and the spiritual growth of a flock um it's really taken a toll on on some guys and so we just want to remember to be praying for our pastors make sure um that when you reach out to talk to them, that um, you, you do so as much to say, hey, praying for you, thinking about you. Can I buy a cup of coffee? Uh, is there anything I can do for you? Can I you know, watch your kids so you can go out on a date night? Something, some tangible means of, of support, um, at least as often, if not more often than you are asking for a question, or certainly offering a criticism or complaint. So I just thought that was really significant. In fact, the first kind of round of of, of suggestions that came in were these sort of amorphous, kind of emotional, spiritual. I'm feeling mm-hmm. down. What can you you know offer as a word of help uh, response? And I thought, wow, okay, that's pretty s- significant. Uh, yeah, but we we do have some practical and uh, some other kind of more specific. Uh, sort of things to talk about. And so let's just jump right in. This comes from Noah on Twitter and Noah uh, presents the scenario. He says somebody professes faith in Christ on Sunday. I suppose he means responding to some sort of invitation or coming up after the service to talk to a pastor or a counselor of some kind and says, I'm a Christian. I want to um, you know, become a Christian. What are the next steps you would like this new convert to be walking through. How will you mm-hmm. ensure he is discipled? What does that plan look like? How soon will he be baptized? So basically next steps <laughs> for the new believer. For Noah the...
1: found a way to sneak in four
0: questions. <laughs> yeah, he got four questions. in, um, But it's good. It's basically he's elaborating on yep. what do you right. do with somebody who shows up and says, I'm a Christian now. What? Yeah. What's your first uh, round of advice? So, Ronnie, um, if that were to ever happen in Emmaus, someone, you know, <laughs> amazingly got saved at your church. <laughs> <laughs> what? They came up after the service. They said, uh, I've, I've received Jesus this morning or, or yeah, I, I, I prayed. I, I want to know what it means to be a Christian now. Uh, what would you say? What's the counsel uh, for you guys? Yeah.
1: Well, first of all, uh, great question. I think this is an important question to think about and, uh, the step one is to rejoice. Of course, uh, we want to, you know, join the course of, of of heaven and rejoice over this new brother or sister in the faith. And so I would want to want to celebrate with them. But with, to answer this question, I would say you kind of need one major caveat. And that this might seem contradictory. I don't think it's contradictory. I think it's more of a paradox and contradictory. But uh, I would say is think about this exact scenario and and plan an actual course of action for when it does happen. And at yeah, the same time- so you're not time, on your heels when it happens. Exactly, yeah, that's yeah. right. Yeah, don't want to be on your heels. And at the same time, I would suggest to hold that plan a little bit open-handed since um, everyone's story is a touch different. And so have a plan so you're not on your heels and also have pastoral sensitivity and circumstantial wisdom to know that you can't treat every new convert exactly the same. It's just not that. Uh, cookie cutter in, in that kind of a way. So uh, yeah, for us, first steps often involve um, a meeting with a pastor. And that typically happens pretty, pretty quick. Uh, we want to to kind of ask some questions and um, see exactly what, what, where their head's at. And again, this is where if you, where, where it's not always going to be the same, depending on who it is, because, you know, if it's a brother or sister, I have tons of history with. Well, I'm, I'm kind of privy to some of the information I would want to find out in that meeting. But if it's a brother or sister who, you know, let's say circumstances, I don't know them, never met them in my life, and now they've they've said, you know, as a result of your sermon or what have you, you I now believe in Jesus. Well, that's a that's a very different plan of of action. But step one for us is to is to meet with a pastor and and hear some questions, and then kind of get plugged in with a few other congregants uh, to be walking in the the path towards baptism and then at Emmaus, baptism is you're baptized into membership. So, uh, church membership would be a, a conversation in question. We would be having along, uh, this, this whole path of baptism was, was to come, but what, what, what about you? I'd love to hear your answer.
0: Yeah. Um, to me, the, the significant part here is the, uh, is the, is the baptism question. And I think it's a pretty common question. Um, and I, I, I think it's a matter of discernment because, you know, I think the, the proper timing is that you neither rush nor overlong delay. Yeah. You know, I don't think, um, you know, sometimes when we talk about, um, you know, someone who's professing faith not being baptized immediately, some people think, well, gosh, like, you know, you're, are, are you doubting their profession? Or are you, um, and, and it can sound like that, but I do think, um, you know, you want to see evidence of, uh, of genuine repentance in their life. Uh, some testimony of the lord's grace in, in in you know in their life that they understand um, you know the cost of discipleship, all of those sorts of things to you know to the best of their ability. however, I don't think it means you need to set up okay, you need to go through these eight weeks of this or that or the other thing and have these kind of long drawn out hoops and and you know bars to jump, you know um sometimes we make it uh, um You know, more complicated to get baptized than it was to get saved in the beginning. You know, to to actually come to Christ. I said, "Well, Jesus may accept you, but you know, but we don't—not not not quite yet." So, I don't think you rush for those reasons. You want to see evidence of you know uh, a credible profession of faith, but determining that credibility, uh, you know, takes a little while. Takes some interview. Takes some getting to know them. That sort of thing. So. You know that's the major thing for me, and I don't have a timeline for that. I think it's different for every person. I think it's different um, in different circumstances. Sometimes depending on the age of the person, um, and we're going to talk about that in a, mo- in, in a moment as well. Um, but that's the major issue for me. Um, but then beyond that, that discipleship process. This to me, I think, is something that's sorely lacking in a lot mm-hmm. of evangelical churches. Is okay, we've got them. You know, they made a profession. We got them dunked. All right, here's the church. You know, have fun. And we don't have a plan. We don't have a means of discipleship for these folks or sometimes even tracking, you know, people. So, um, you know, we've talked about this before, but I think this is reinforcing the the importance of baptism being, you know, uh, simultaneous or synonymous with membership in the local church. It's not just like a second stage in the discipleship journey, membership now, then down the road from that even. When you're baptizing somebody, you're saying we are welcoming you not just into the Christian faith, but we are welcoming you into the covenantal, uh, you know, brethren of this. That's right. This local uh, assembly. So, you know, you should have a discipleship plan for your church. And therefore, you should be making sure that this new member of your church is well integrated into that, that, that he's, you know, he or she is under pastoral care. Uh, that they're involved um, in whatever kind of community uh, structure you have in yeah. place, community groups or something like that. Um, and I also think, you know, some sort of discipleship training, if you can pair them up with someone who can meet with them and kind of begin helping them with, uh, you know, how they begin their new life in Christ and, and you know, what it means to follow Jesus and begin to apply those things, deeper understanding of theology and, and of course, uh, deeper knowledge of God's word, kind of walking mm-hmm. through. Uh, you know, Bible study and, and all those sorts of things. So uh, And uh, about, because I think
1: one of the things that you said, it really is a tension in a lot of pastors' minds about, do I wait for signs of fruit or do I baptize quickly, which seems to be the pattern of, of the mm. biblical data. Um, I, I think one of the things that helps, and here's a here's a plug uh, for any of our non-Baptist listeners, one reason you should be a Baptist is uh, we we obviously— Affirm regenerate church membership, so we do want to make sure we're only baptizing believers. But as Baptists, at least in our in our ecclesiology, we typically tie the ordinances together, and so I totally get the hesitancy of wanting to wait to baptize someone to make sure they are a believer. However, if baptism is our you know once for all affirmation of we think they're part of uh, the church, well, the Lord's Supper is our continual, and for us, since we practice weekly communion. Uh, It's our weekly affirmation that they are a brother, and um, that having that built in actually kind of allows you to still give tons of emphasis at the beginning to make sure they're a believer when baptized. But also, you know, you have church discipline in your back pocket. You have weekly administering the, you know, allowing them to come to the table in your back pocket, and those things help. You know, if you, you know, God forbid. They're they're not a believer, and you baptize them, and they somehow get into membership. Well, there are means, biblically ordained means, to, to remedy that problem as well.
0: Yeah, and and you know, I think I would also say just in terms of the delay, say like we really want to make sure you can't be a hundred percent sure of anyone. That's right. <laughs> um, you know, people who have been prof- you know professing Christian for you know for years um, wind up on the wrong side of church discipline, unrepentance. Uh, bringing their profession, un, you know, under scrutiny or or into skepticism by their behavior. So, you know, we don't have the mind of God, and at some point, we have to have some faith in Him and in the uh, process and structure that He's laid out for actually helping people who make professions of faith. So, um, again, I don't think that you you rush into the thing, um, you know, with no due consideration of credibility. But I also don't think you need to subject, it, you know, people to you know, ever increasing layers of skepticism. And, um, and in fact, those things can sometimes even squelch or or, or quench the spirit um, in the process. Okay. This is Mike also on Twitter. And Mike's question is a related question. I think, how do you know when your child is ready for baptism? How are you going to know, Ronnie? How, (laughs) how, how How old is your, your child now? She just turned six months old, so not okay. quite ready for baptism. <laughs> well, if you're one of our Presbyterian brothers and sisters, you have She's delayed <laughs> too long. You've been waiting for a credible profession of humanity. or something. Yeah.
1: <laughs> She's I, a
0: human being. Why haven't you baptized her?
1: <laughs> right. uh, because of the new covenant, Jared. <laughs>
0: okay. Well, um, obviously, I have some thoughts on this, but um, yeah. i to give you a stab at it because I'm sure you thought about it. How will you know? Uh, yeah. Yeah. When, uh, your daughter's ready to be baptized.
1: Well, I think the answer to this one is going to sound a lot like the answer to our previous question, right? Uh, if what we're after in baptism, at least in the Baptist concession, uh, uh conception of, of baptism, if what we're after is a credible profession, a testimony of grace, as you said, well, that's what I'm going to be after in my children's life. I will say This is one of the reasons it's so good to walk in Christian community because I've been a dad for uh, just about six months now, and I have already seen the propensity to... you know, interpret everything my daughter does as the best possible thing she could have done, you know, so I'm, <laughs> I'm like one bad day away from interpreting like a goo or a guy into a, a credible oppression of faith. So uh, <laughs>
0: right. she said, uh, God, I know she did.
1: <laughs> <laughs> and so it's good to have brothers and sisters who know, you know, your children are involved in their life as well. Who can also testify Hey, actually, I don't think you're misreading the situation. I think you really do. You have a Christian living in your home who should probably be, b- be baptized at some point. And uh that's good. I will say this is it is a little tricky, and we've actually worked through this quite a bit at our church. Uh, is kind of the, I think we've talked about this before, Jared, the the couplings that we see in the scripture that you don't want to break. And what I mean by that is is basically this: you have a pairing of. Confession of faith and baptism that seems to happen quickly. So that's one pairing. You have a pairing of baptism and being added to the number of a local church. So that's one pairing. And then you have the pairing of being a member of the local church and having the responsibilities, rights, and privileges of that membership. That's a pairing. And so think about that how hard that pairing is when you have, you know, a parent approach a pastor with a six-year-old right. who they think, you know, this this is. My son, who's now a believer, we think he needs to be baptized. Well, if your theology has you baptized into membership and that membership has certain rights and privileges, well, that chain shouldn't be broken, right? Uh, and so you're now asking the question, should I baptize this six year old into a right into a body in which they now have the right and privilege of church discipline, for example, right? And that's a big question. And so we have actually worked on that being able to teach parents that, um, that chain. And that has helped us uh, with parents conception of like when their children should be baptized. And we've actually kind of created a caveat of, we will baptize them into membership working uh, very closely with the parents on important decisions and what actual membership means in a a meaningful way for, you know, the 12 year old, for example, um, so yeah, so I think those are kind of some of the things that we've done at our church that have been helpful,
0: yeah, I think that uh, um, connection the, the biblical connection between baptism and incorporation in into a local church body is really clarifying for this question, but I think just in terms of okay, how do you know to begin this consideration? um you know, is it the moment when a child is you know prays the prayer and that sort of thing um i I think there's a couple things that you look for, and these are the things that we look for with our uh with our daughter. It's it's not just parroting what mom or dad say. Um and that's something that as a pastor I would look for in terms of, you know, little Johnny or Little you know, little Susie wants to be baptized is to ask them to what baptism means and the implications of baptism, uh, apart from mom or dad saying, uh, well, she just wants to be or or faith. So I don't have like an age cut off, but I think all these considerations play into um you know the determination of of when somebody is is ready or not what should a pastor's weekly schedule for i i think our answers might be somewhat different as far as i know you you have never been a full-time or vocational pastor correct that's correct Okay, so you're a pastor at Emmaus Church, uh, one of several elders. You, um, you, you, you do preach regularly, uh, but you have a full-time job outside. So therefore, your sermon prep schedule is going to look different. W- why don't you share? What is your—all right, I'm preaching on a given Sunday to Emmaus. What does your schedule look like?
1: Okay, just uh, full transparency, our internet connection is getting rough. So I may oh, have no. missed some okay. of your question, but I think <laughs> if I heard you right, uh, you're asking what my sermon prep looks like, given the fact that I have a full-time job and a PhD student. Is, is that correct?
0: That's correct. Yes.
1: Okay, perfect. Good. Um, yeah, that is a great question. Uh, <laughs> when I fully figure out how to do it well, I will come back to this podcast and share the news. No, I mean, <laughs> I say that jokingly, but it is difficult. I mean, yeah, I'm I'm a PhD student finishing my dissertation. I am a new dad. I have a full-time job. Uh, I teach adjunctly, you know, for multiple universities, uh, teach theology classes. So when I'm not the every week preacher and I have even slowed down, I used to preach close to 40, 50% of the sermons at the church when we were a little bit younger as a church plant. And now I'm uh, much more um, I'm not, not nearly as frequent as that uh, anymore, but it's still pretty common for me to preach once a month or or so. And so those weeks where I am preaching, uh, this is not a cool or really, you know, uber wise answer, but the answer is just time management for for any of our listeners who are, um, have bivocational things going on or, or outside responsibilities. You just have to time manage well. And so for me, that looks like knowing myself, for example, I, am a much better writer and reader and thinker before lunch. Uh, I work very well from as early as 5 a.m. to about 1 p.m. And at 1 p.m., I just am not as good of a writer. I'm not as good of a thinker. And so I need to schedule, for instance, you know, previous Saturdays before I preach uh, to to give myself that 5 a.m. to noon time period to focus on writing. And then as well, take advantage of, Um, any little moment. So, you know, some of my sermon prep on really busy weeks after I've done my own exegesis and what have you looks like taking advantage of the fact that I have to drive to some meetings and listening to other folks who I love and appreciate preach that particular sermon. uh, That helps me even just in the, you know, in between meetings, redeem that time for sermon prep, which is helpful. Uh, And then it also does help to, Kind of just constantly be in the word because it allows you to be more sensitive, need a little bit less time. You know, if you have to, you know, kindle a fire for what you're going to preach, that takes you two or three days. Well, that really cripples your writing ability. Whereas if you've kind of been in the word, period, even if it's not your passage, uh, but I would say, you know, this is an argument for exegetical preaching or verse by verse preaching, because even though I'm not the regular preacher, I'm kind of living and breathing that book. Along with the other pastors, so when it does come my time for the you know my text, uh, I've been kind of in the book. I've been thinking about it. The book's been you know warming my soul. I've had my affections stirred, and then I can kind of do the exegetical work when I've you know made time in my you know busy schedule.
0: Yeah, that's good. Um, my schedule, uh, and and I wouldn't say this needs to be formulaic for everybody, but just you know I've shared this I think before. Um, I had to set aside a whole day, right? So I mean I have. You know, as a full-time pastor, I had the, you know, the whole week. Um, And usually Monday, Tuesday, this is just how my week went. Monday, Tuesday, um, I've got the text out in front of me in some way, but I'm not doing sermon prep in earnest yet. I just have it kind of on a sheet of paper. And as I have time, I'm looking down at it, you know, thinking through it, maybe jotting notes, brainstorming, doing just kind of that initial work of, you know, leaning into the gift of, of, of your ability to teach and you know, just kind of stretching that, maybe even illustration ideas, but just kind of the preliminary work of exegesis on the thing. But Wednesdays was the day that I would get out of the office and, um, you know, I'd go to a coffee shop in the next town over, and that was my sermon prep day. Now, obviously, things, you know, sometimes come up, but mm-hmm. generally, I, I found the routine good of of not just saying, well, I'll figure out in the middle of, you know, in the week when I can do the sermon, but saying, no, Wednesdays are my sermon prep days. yep. yep. Um, and, and that was just dedicated to that. Which helps your people too, by the way, because they know that now. Exactly. Exactly. Um, and they could get a hold of me if they needed to, but in general, that's what I did. So I, you know, start early Wednesday morning and I'd go until the end of the day and do the bulk of it that day. Now, Thursday, I may work on it a little bit, um, as well by the end of the day, Thursday, um, if it's not done already, I want an outline at least by the end of the day, Thursday, a good working outline that I could even preach from so not just the bare exegetical outline but full homiletical outline with my message points illustration ideas you know the notes for my exposition all of that sort of you know thing and then i would get up and i'm actually hearing from more and more guys that this uh, i think this is becoming more and more common but again i would not recommend it for everyone but it worked for me i'd get up early sunday morning usually about 4 a.m. 4:30 4 a.m. and pull up that outline after kind of not really looking at it you you know you're, you're you're obviously thinking about it because as a preacher, you can't not think about it over the weekend. But Fridays and Saturdays, I would tend not to mess around with it. Uh, but Sunday mornings, I'd pull it up. It's now a little bit fresher in my mind, and I would manuscript. Um, and, and Sunday mornings, my manuscripting was basically, if I could preach it the way that I would want, you know, if I could say exactly what I wanted to say, how would I say it? And that's what I would manuscript. And there's a couple of advantages to that. Number one, it was fresher for me. Sometimes I think the more time you spend with a manuscript, editing, tweaking, it begins to sound less like a manuscript that that um, is to be preached and more mm-hmm. like something to be read, like an essay. That's not always the case, but for me, that's the case. So the, the fresher it is, the rougher draft it is in that manuscripting, the more it actually sounds like the way I speak rather than me trying to present a written piece for someone. Hmm. Um, and so it just translated better to a preaching manuscript than... You know any other way, um, but you know, and then it, and then it's fresher for me as well, and it serves as kind of like a rehearsal, so to speak, um, of that. Now that takes some practice. I mean, we can talk in another episode if we haven't already about manuscripting versus outlining it, and I, and I think we do have an episode on that yeah. or, or something similar to that. Uh, but that's how my schedule worked. Here's just a couple of notes that I would say um, for anyone you know listening in in terms of planning out their week. If you find regularly that your sermon prep is being done on Saturdays and Saturday nights. Not because for whatever reason that's the best time for you, like it's fresher for you, but because um, that's like the leftover time of the week. Something's upside down. If, yep. if the primary task of the pastor is, is, is prayer and ministry of the word, then the, the preaching task should be preeminent for, for your week, which means uh, it shouldn't get left over time or get, or get pushed into the margins. You have to prioritize your sermon prep. And if your people don't understand that, then you need to somehow teach them and explain to them that this is super important that you prioritize sermon prep. The other thing that I would say is if you're regularly finding, like, you know, um, that your sermon prep is taking 20, 30, 40, I mean, it's like it, it's going on and on and on, and it's eating up a whole lot of time. Um, and sometimes we're not helped by guys, you know, big time guys who say, I spend 30 hours on a sermon or 40, you know, whatever it is. And you think, good grief, how? Huh? you know, the small church pastor who's a solo pastor or the only vocational pastor, you know, those guys may feel like I must be, you know, chump change because I, I you know, I don't even have the time to put into that. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say if you're spending that much time um, more often than not, you're either trying to do too much in a sermon uh, you're, you're overcooking it, <laughs> you know, in some way um, you're trying to make it like a running commentary or, or some kind of commentary. Um you know, so you're trying to do too much in the sermon, or, or I would say, and this is worst case scenario. If this is a regular pattern, you're struggling, um, you know, every week to figure out what you're, how you're going to say this and what you're going to say, and and it's just a, just a slog. It may be that you're not gifted to preach. Um, now, some obviously some sermons are more difficult than others, some because some texts are more difficult than others mm-hmm. and, and and require more or or you know for whatever reason. But if this is a regular pattern of just, man, this is like pushing a boulder uphill every single time through mud. And, uh, <laughs> and it's just a weekly thing. Um, that may require some soul searching, I think, uh, on your part. So that's, that's what we'll say about that. Um, let, let's go to Cody here on Facebook. Cody on Facebook wants to know, how do you build a culture of theological interest in a church without being pretentious <laughs> or losing your congregation's interest. So <laughs> I, I'm presuming uh, you're leading, you know, you're leading a congregation yeah. that aren't, that don't have a, a bent towards reading, you know, uh, robust theology or maybe you, you have a congregation um, as some of our brothers in in some rural contexts and, and some urban context perhaps um, where you've got a great number of people who say, I'm not really a reader. I don't really read and you're trying to cultivate an interest in good theology and, and a culture of readership. How do you do that without making it sound like Christianity is just some kind of academic pursuit or, or, or it's only for the intellectual types. Wow. Um, you're an intellectual type, Mr. (laughs) Immutability dissertation. (laughs) How do you do this at Emmaus? And, and I, you know, this is a good question because, um, your church as, as, uh, as my church is, is stacked with seminary students Mm -hmm. and, and has leaders that are, uh, pretty well connected to the seminary as well, either grads or even current, uh, uh, or ex or current, uh, staffers, um, or current students. How do you, um, translate the spiritual benefit of being interested in, you know, interested in theology without it making it sound like you've got to be some kind of seminarian type person. Yeah. Well, first
1: of all, I just love this question. Of course, this is, uh, you know, kind of red meat to a guy like me. So, uh, <laughs> thanks for asking it. Um,
0: Cody, Cody uh,
1: asked it. I did ask you. Yeah. Thanks for asking Cody. Uh, <laughs> you're a much better question asker than Jared anyway. <laughs> I, I would, uh, kind of ask for permission to speak out of both sides of my mouth. And and here's what I mean by that. I would first say, you know, if if your congregation is very new to kind of theological inquiry and just thinking, you know, deep things of God in general, it does help to connect the, you know, any kind of intellectual endeavor towards their actual lives. So, you know, if you're trying to get them to contemplate who God is, you know, in his attributes or something. Um, well, why does it matter that God is unchanging, for example? Or why does it matter that he is, you know, not composed in parts? How, that, that's a really abstract concept. And so why does it matter for me to affirm that, you know, God it has life in himself and is not contingent on another or, or, or whatever, pick your attribute. Um, kind of connecting theological inquiry towards worship is is really helpful uh, or, or even connecting theological inquiry towards the, the practical realities of their life is really helpful now I want to speak out of the other side of my mouth because I often fear that we have made theology overly pragmatic and have lost the ability for simple Christian contemplation as a means in itself and i I think we've even been warned against that and and I just want to kind of win the day back for uh, contemplation. And so once out of my mouth, I want to say connect theological inquiry to their real practical everyday life, help them see how a big vision of God can make them better at their vocation. And at the same time, help them forget pragmatics and just develop the, the desire to sit at the feet of a magnificent God and just stare at him and contemplate in the, with Christian wisdom. And, and Christian means contemplate this grand God, and and know that it's okay to you know get lost in your head, as it were, when the thing we're losing ourselves to is the Lord. And I, I think those two things, connecting to practical worship and or connecting to practical everyday life, and then connecting to worship, those really help congregants see uh, this actually matters. You know, loving the Lord with my mind is an imperative, and that I should obey.
0: Yeah. That second, uh, component I think is really key as well, because churches don't get excited about what leaders tell them to be excited about. They get excited about what you are evidently excited about. That's your, right. your affections are as formative for them, if not more so than uh, your instructions to them. Absolutely. So, um, if, if you are demonstrating the, um, yeah, uh, the, how theology leads to doxology or the connection between theology and doxology in, in just your own presentation of this stuff um, showing the awe that can be produced by the reading or contemplating of, of, you know, the deep things of God Um, that will begin to kind of communicate and, and begin Mm -hmm. to shape your, your congregation. Um, But I just want to put a word in here also for just the steady plotting of, of gospel centered preaching and teaching um, Jonathan Edwards, in his uh, distinguishing marks of a true move of the Spirit of God, says that a, a, a renewed interest in theology and doctrine is one of the marks of revival. Mm-hmm. And and so I I think sometimes um, you know we we need to be um, encouraging this and training our people in it. However, the best uh, pursuit of you know deeper theology and deeper knowledge of God's Word and and studying kind of the more complex stuff. That is often the in the wake of um, people's uh, affection for Jesus, they're in love with Christ, they're fixated on the gospel, and now they have a hunger and a passion to know more and and they become more insatiable for that sort of thing and it's the spiritual uh, supernatural outgrowth of um, the simplicity of the gospel mm-hmm. which reveals itself as complex once you're kind of in enthralled with it. So I just want to put a word in for faithful gospel centered teaching over time, beginning yep. to produce this fruit of people yep. having their kind of intellect stirred. They want mm-hmm. to love the, you know, the Lord with all of their mind more and more naturally, which is to say supernaturally because of uh, the centrality of the gospel and their enthrallment with the finished work of Christ. So yeah, um, this, yeah, this is good. Uh, uh, some good stuff here. Um, we've got some other questions. I'm going to save them. Uh, Cause we're running a little long here. Yeah. Um, but man, it's been good talking with you.
1: Of course. Yeah. Good to see you again, Jared.
0: Yeah. I'm going to go uh, put my pre-order in for what was it? No shadow. What was it? <laughs> no shadow of turning. Yeah. No shadow of turning. Oh, okay. Yeah. Good. Biblical, That's no right, shadow yeah. of turning. Um, I'm looking forward to that brother. Uh, I and it, I hope you have a great week. I hope all of our listeners are having a great week. As always, if you enjoy the podcast, please share us with your friends. Give us a good review on iTunes. I haven't checked the reviews lately. I'm just going to yeah. assume everyone's super positive.
1: <laughs> uh, I'm not every- really a review checker, so
0: I well I'm that guy. I want to know what are people <laughs> saying because I'm a people pleaser, um, but then if they don't like it, I don't care about pleasing them. But there you go. But if you do like it, hey, uh, you know, give us a good review on iTunes, Spotify, Amen. whatever platform, wherever you listen to your favorite podcast, and as always, may Jesus be big in your church. You've been listening to the For the Church podcast hosted by Jared Wilson, found online at ftc.co. This resource is brought to you by Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary in Kansas City, Missouri, where we train leaders for the church.